and Shearer. It's Shearer for you, Gunther! The way he brought that down was fabulous. Cantonar. Well, after 55 long years and plenty of heartache along the way, England are back in a major tournament final. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Shooting Zars Euros podcast with me, Stuart Marshall. But this time I'm without Bryce and Alex. However, I am joined by another guest. You would have seen him covering the A-League for Fox Sports this year and he's a regular on Fox Sports News covering football. His name's James Dodd. Doddy, what a morning we've had. And welcome back to the podcast for the second time. Stewie, thanks very much, mate. Good to be here. Yeah, what a morning indeed. When my alarm went off in the wee hours, you know, I'm, I'm used to getting up at that time for work, but this one felt different, you know, knowing that England had this, this what feels like a, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to, to reach a final of a tournament on home soil. You know, getting up for that was, was enough, but then sitting through and watching... You know, Damsgaard score that unbelievable free kick, and then you know, Casper Schmeichel producing that save from Raheem Sterling at close quarters, and you're thinking, oh no, it's not going to happen. It's it's just not going to happen. But then you know, they 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 rode the storm Denmark, but ultimately England showed good composure, I think. And you know, they 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 hadn't been behind in this tournament before today, and I just think. That was a that was a test that they had to pass that moment in particular, and they did so. You know that Denmark didn't lead for for very long, and from then on, I think England always felt as though they were the ones that, if anyone was going to win it before a penalty shootout, I think England probably felt it would be them. And they got there in the end. It's a bit of luck with a penalty. I know it's been hotly contested, and and you know I've seen a million and one different angles of the contact or no contact, whatever people want to say, but they got the job done, mate, and happy days. Well, let's start there then. You mentioned it's been hotly contested and debated already, you know, in the however many hours, seven or five hours since the game finished, but <laughs> um, was it a penalty? In your opinion, was that a penalty? So I look at this in a couple of different ways, right? If that was committed outside the box, it would be a foul every day of the week. Just like the foul on from Luke Shaw on Christensen that led to the free kick is given outside the box. If that was in the box, referee probably doesn't give that as a penalty, right? So if you flip them and then you see the camera angles and I think as soon as I saw the first one, I thought, oh, he's gone over. It, he's not, you know, the defender's pulled his leg away. But then when you see the reverse angle, and this is the one that unfortunately wasn't shown on the TV broadcasts, but it's the one that the VAR crucially had and they looked at then his knee makes contact with him. Now, what happens is his knee makes contact, uh, Marla's knee makes contact with Sterling, but then the defender on Sterling's left also makes contact with Sterling. So it's almost like he's sandwiched. It's like a pinball. Raheem Sterling's like a pinball between the two defenders. And for me, I think it is a penalty. You know, I was I was really uneasy or unsure, I suppose is the better word, when I saw the first ones. But then afterwards... The fact that the VAR, people were saying, why didn't the VAR check it? The VAR did check it. They had that replay. They saw it and they said to the referee, now bear in mind, it's not up to the referee whether he goes over and has a look. If the VAR says to the ref on field, we've reviewed it, stick to the decision, is correct. He's then not going to say, uh, actually, do you know what though? I still want to come over and have another look. That's not how it works. The referee says, okay, I've got the decision correct. 
I'll stick with a penalty. So, you know, I, I understand why people are saying it was soft, and I think it is soft, but you've got to remember Raheem Sterling, he's light anyway, and he was traveling at some, some speed weaving through those players. It doesn't take much to knock someone off balance. You think about if someone was running running along and you get a little trip on your heel, you know, it's quite easy to make someone fall over. But, yeah. you know, regardless of that, it, <laughs> I mean, they still saved the penalty. But yeah, yeah. Harry Kane in the right place at the right time to follow it up. And, you know, from then on, um, the way in which England managed that game was was tremendous. You know, they, I think they kept the ball for about two and a half minutes at one yeah. period as they were winding down the clock and yeah. probably strung together 35, 40 passes in that time. And it was fantastic. And I've never seen an England team manage a game quite like they did. So... Yeah, I understand how people say it was soft, but I do think it was a penalty. Interesting. See, I I, I don't. I don't think there was enough uh, contact, but I understand what you're saying. But I, I guess the, the the grievance people have with uh, situations like that, where it's maybe like the referee has got the decision wrong, but like you say, maybe there isn't enough evidence to overturn it. People want to see the referee go to the screen, right, and sort of milk it like that. But like you mm. say, that isn't how it works. And if there's if the VAR doesn't think that uh, it needs to be overturned, then the referee's never going to go and have another look at the screen. So, yeah, fascinating. It's almost like I, I kind of feel as well maybe, although it's great England one, I mean, some people say they don't care how we win, but, you know, for England to maybe win the match in that manner, you know, dodgy call. Uh, and then Harry Kane probably, I, I don't think I've ever seen Harry Kane hit a worse penalty than, mm. than what he did. He just like, yeah, yeah completely... You know, mess that one up. Schmeichel saved it, but uh, yeah, interesting flashpoint, major talking point for the game. I can't really remember two other um, big sort of talking points like that from a refereeing perspective in the tournament. So um, yeah, I mean, like look, looking ahead and sort of like I mentioned at the start, 55 years it's been for England since the World Cup win in '66. There's been three, four semi-finals lost. Um, what does this mean for England? You're English. What, what does it mean for the nation? Like, can you sum that up? Obviously, it's obvious what it means, but like, it does, yeah. How, how do you think this win will, you know, go down for England in years to come? I think um, you often hear people talk about generational things, you know, be it a, a political movement or, or whatever it may be. In, and often it is referenced in sport. And, and that really is what happened this morning you know i'd seen england reach the i was that you know i was in russia when they got to the 2018 uh, semi-finals at the world cup and you know i'd seen them at euro 96 it was the first tournament i remember watching even though i was really young i still remember it and i just think this is something for for so many people and especially people of an older generation who who are just so synonymous with england falling over you know and just and if, if something can go wrong it will like you know obviously i wasn't even alive at this point but diego maradona's handball or the moment against germany where frank lampard has the shot and the ball is, is so far over the line it's ridiculous like how that wasn't even spotted at the time it is the ghost goal me the ghost goal yep you know things like that it, it's almost become and this is where i had this sort of you know the um, back and forth with a few people on Twitter about about the song It's Coming Home because that is the antithesis of what that song is about. It's about England accepting and laughing and being accustomed to how bad and how crap they've been over the years. And if something can go wrong, it will. And it's kind of just what we're used to as football fans 
you know from a national from an international perspective with england so this this reaching the final and don't get me wrong i i I do think, and I will come on to this in a bit. I do think Italy will will probably win, but it just means so much to to that nation and that that you know. I can only speak from it from my personal perspective, but you know, speaking to my friends and my family constantly throughout the last eighteen months and how miserable everybody is has been in the UK with how COVID nineteen has affected that country and and some of the real dark times that they went through. Given you know, looking at the death rates on a daily basis and, and how just how alarmingly that hurt the country to see them reach the final of a major tournament with someone like Gareth Southgate in charge, who is, who is one of the nicest, most respected and, you know, just generally good human beings at the, in charge. Mm. It, it, it feels brilliant to be honest. Well, let's let's go to Gareth Southgate because that was another talking point I wanted to bring up. Gareth Southgate, um, you know, when he first took over, his story has been quite remarkable. Obviously, he's got the history of the missing the the penalty in Euro '96, and there's um, all sort of redemption stories being thrown about for this tournament. Where does this put him? I mean, if he can deliver a trophy for England, is he going to get knighted? I've got a funny feeling he will. <laughs> That's one thing. But in terms of like his management, he doesn't feel like uh, there's been a manager like Southgate for England in year, you know, within the last 20 years at least. I saw something on Twitter. Someone said there hasn't been a, a manager like Southgate managing England since Sir Bobby. So that's obviously quite a, 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 a hefty comparison in that sense. But, yeah, talk about Gareth Southgate and do you think, um, yeah, like, like what he's done. Like it's, it's quite an amazing achievement in terms of how he's transformed his team, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And when he first got the job, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that he he got it kind of, uh, you know, by accident. He was the kind of the successor to Roy Hodgson in, in that he was an easy choice, and people weren't really sure about what he would he would do because he's you know his managerial club career hadn't really pulled up any trees. You know, actually, he, he hadn't done that well at all. And at Middlesbrough, wasn't it? I yeah, he was at Middlesbrough. Yeah. Yep. And I think most people then thought, oh, you know, what, what is he? We have this thing in England where it's like, oh, a foreign coach must always be better because, you know, maybe it's because, you know, in a footballing sense, they're not as set, English coaches aren't as sexy as foreign coaches, you know, and the way they're, they're, their methods and the way they, the football they play. But like I said earlier, what first and foremost, what he is, he's, he's a fantastic human being, Gareth Southgate. And, and that was highlighted none more so than at the start of the tournament when there was the, um, all the, the attention about the England players taking the knee before kickoff. And his, the way he dealt with that situation, you know, it was such a credit to not just the Football Association, but England fans, the people that have, we've got such a leader like that, who is, you know, he was so measured in the way that he was speaking about it. And he said, listen, regardless of your political persuasion or what you think of it, this is not a political message that we're sending out. It's one of equality. And, you know, please respect us. We're doing it. We know we, we need your support, but please support us in doing this because it's what we feel is right as a football team. And, you know, before a ball had even been kicked, for, for England manager to come out and say that, you know, that's given that how, you know, divisive, unfortunately, taking the knee has become. Um, it's so refreshing to see that, you know, Gareth Southgate seemingly isn't, you know, he's been through the lowest of lows as we're playing with England, you know missing that penalty at Euro 96. And then to see him 
you know, get the support of everyone. Like there, there aren't many people. Yeah, you can criticize someone's style of play, but there aren't many people that would criticize Gareth Southgate going into this tournament because, you know, he, if anything, people were saying he's been a bit too cautious. But that's only because of the sheer attacking nature of the the, the talent he's got available to him. But it's just, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to interview Gareth a couple of times, and okay. I've I've met him a few times, and he's just a really nice man who's who's got an excellent you know the the world cup semi-final against croatia that 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 gave him a lot of credit i think but to back it up and do what he's done now yeah puts him up there and you know he was the only england manager to have reached two semi-finals um since sir alf ramsey who won the world cup with england in 66 so for him to reach this final, regardless of what happens against Italy, Gareth Southgate, I think they're going to give him a new contract anyway, but he absolutely deserves it. And and you can tell that he's just, he's the media like him, which isn't always the case in England with England managers. And the players really like him as well. And yeah, fair play to him because I think he's done a, a fantastic job. Yeah, he's just changed the whole perception around the team, hasn't he? He, he seems like a, a, a genuine person and I like, He's impersonable, and he's he's got time for every player, and um, I think that was evident in his after the quarterfinal win when obviously he won four nil, PE Ukraine four nil. But he was sort of saying in his post match presser, or oh, you know the the people I'm or the the team members I'm thinking about the most are the ones that I didn't get on to play, like Ben Chilwell and Connor Cody. But yeah, no, he's he's um yeah he's he's obviously his credibility has grown throughout this tournament. Um, I don't know. Like everyone's is seemingly is trusting him, and maybe all those doubts about whether he was, you know, good enough and cutthroat enough and skilled enough for this job. I saw Gary Lineker threw out a tweet during this game, and this is like an interesting touch point in the game as well. He subs on Jack Grealish in what the 67th minute, but then subs him off in extra time. So he mm-hmm. subbed the sub to bring on Trippier to shore up the second half of extra time to to get the win. But even that, you know, like is Gareth Southgate ruthless enough to, you know, get the job done in these big matches? And that was maybe a signal that, yes, he is, because, you know, that doesn't happen a lot. But um, it's even like like the Phil Foden decision as well. You know, Phil Foden started, everyone thought Foden's the the man. He's, you know, he's not going to lose his place. You know, forgive me if I'm wrong. I I think since Bukayo Saka was fit and available, you know, since he got given the chance against Czech Republic, Phil Foden hasn't started a game. And, you know, Saka's was injured, missed the Ukraine game, comes back straight in. Jaden Sancho played well, for example, and there's all the clamour about getting Jaden Sancho into the team. And, you know, he played that one game against Ukraine and then Saka straight back in. So Gareth Southgate has proven that, you know, he, he's not um, he's not a soft touch. If you're not like, afraid to make those, tough yeah. decisions as well. So, um, quick word on Harry Kane. He's now equal Gary Lineker as England's joint highest scorer in a major tournament, which is scary considering he's only... 28 um and you wonder how many more major tournaments he's got in him so yeah he's going to break the england goal scoring record but it's funny how you know talk talk through the storyline of harry kane in this tournament early in the tournament he wasn't scoring but as he always does he finally scores and you know shut everybody up hasn't he Mm. yeah he has and you know going into this tournament I think there was obviously all the speculation about Harry Kane wanting to leave Tottenham and I don't know whether that played a part in in where his head was at I don't think you know I don't think it did but you never know unless he comes out and says otherwise and and, you know as the England captain as well I think he feels as though he's got competition for places in that England team in the the centre forward lines but he knows if he's fit he starts 
you know, he's the captain for one, but he's the best striker. He's one of the best strikers in the world. Um, but the fact that everybody was very, very quick to jump on Harry Kane because he hadn't scored uh, it was bizarre because, I mean, Tottenham fans will tell you this. Harry Kane isn't just a goal scorer. Like he's the, he's a complete forward. You know, he brings others into play and, and you saw that in spades for England's opening goal. Dropping into space, the pass to you know, put it this way: if um, if David Silva had paid that pass into the path of Bukayo everybody would go, "Oh, magnificent!" You know, that's look at look at the technique of the class. But because Harry Kane's done it, everybody was seemingly surprised. But he does that a lot, and that's a real part of his game: is dropping deep and allowing players to run in behind him. And it's one of the reasons why Raheem Sterling has had such a good tournament in front of goal, but in general has been one of England's key players because he's got the ability and the kind of freedom to run in behind and make the runs where he wants to make the runs. Bakara Saka's really thrived from it as well. But, you know, I just thought you could see what it meant when Harry Kane did score that second goal against Germany. It kind of felt like it was liftoff and you could see the celebration, what it meant to him. But also it was like, you know, the two goals against Ukraine was a kind of, for all those people that doubted me, you know, well, here I am. And, you give me the ball in the box and I'm going to score. And that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like with Harry Kane. You think, uh, well, just a quick one, is he going to leave Tottenham this summer? I think he probably wants to. Um, whether or not, I mean, Manchester City look like they're the front runners for him and they haven't, you know, as such spent any cash yet and they've got to replace Sergio Aguero somehow. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't think Gabriel Jesus, for as good a player he is, I don't think he is the, the replacement for Sergio Aguero and they obviously want Harry Kane it's just you know good luck to whoever having to do business with Daniel Levy at Spurs because if he wants 150 million pounds for him he's not going to get a penny less than that no no not at all and that seems like that's the sticking point I think Guardiola's been quoted in a Spanish publication saying that replacing Aguero is um, going to be tough because the, the numbers that these clubs are quoting for their players is just too high and you know He's worth plenty in this current market. Yeah. Um, now, just talk about the defence quickly before we get on to Denmark. I mean, just Harry Maguire has come in, and I actually think Harry Maguire is England's best defender. Um, for some reason, he just he, there's so much conjecture around Harry Maguire. I don't know, people, you know, the media just seem to rag on him a lot, but he's come in and shored up that defence to no end, I think. Like it's, it, he's played played so well, but so many defensive options. And sort of, how do you think they've sort of gone throughout the tournament? Well, the fact they've conceded one goal in reaching the final would suggest that you know it's not all about one player, but it's about a, a unit. Cole, and they've played different systems as well. You know, they've played a three, they've played a four, they've 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 tinkered with it, and you know, he missed a few games Maguire because he wasn't fully fit but since he's come back in he is he's so good and I put this out on Twitter during the game I thought he was outstanding today because it's not just the dominance threat that he is in the air in both boxes but it's the way that he can start moves you know he's so good at striding out with the ball he's like a bit of a runaway train when he gets going he's so big and he's you know he's so comfortable with the ball at his feet and driving forward and, and creating space but he was also really good at stopping moves. Like his interceptions in his, you know, winning the ball on the halfway line, aggressive challenges. I thought it was fantastic. So I think he has been magnificent 
The one I wish I think he's gone under the radar is John Stones. You know, John Stones, going into last Premier League season, everybody thought he was done at Manchester City. Like, you know, they bought Nathan Ake in. They had Amaric Laporte, who was excellent. You know, uh, Vincent Company was there and, and they bought in um, uh, Ruiz, uh, Ruben Diaz, rather, uh, uh, you know, and he was yep. magnificent. But there's always this talk about, ah, oh, John Stones is having a good season because he's got Diaz next to him. Or John Stones is good for England because he's got Harry Maguire next to him. John Stones has been, he has not put a foot wrong. Hopefully he doesn't put a foot wrong in the final. You know, yeah. knowing, knowing that is probably <laughs> when it will happen. But, you know, those two have been formidable at the back. Carl Walker has been excellent. Luke Shaw, is, for me, has been the best out of all four of them. Yep. Um, you know, there were times tonight, there was, I think it was, I remember maybe in late in the game or it was in extra time. I can't quite remember what passage of play it was or time on the clock rather. But there was a moment where Denmark had a break on Luke Shaw snuffed it out and was on the halfway line in the smack bang on the center circle, intercepted the ball and England broke. And he did it, and that's how they scored against Germany, you know, and the second goal because he won the ball. Yeah. He puts the crosses in like he's he has gone from strength to strength, Luke Shaw. And yep. you know, I, I was one of those people at the start of the season. I wasn't entirely sure, you know, what he's kind of future would be at Manchester United if they'd look to try and replace him. But last season, he was phenomenal and he's taken that form into to England duty and he's been brilliant as well. Yeah, agreed. I think that, yeah, that passage of play, if, if Shaw didn't get that uh, interception, then I think Denmark were away. So it was like he had to make it. But um, yeah, he, he's been immense. But mm. no, we'll, we'll have to leave England there. Um, we'll, we'll quickly preview the, the final. But um, quick word on Denmark as well. I mean, what a tournament they've had, all things considered. Um, obviously, the Christian Eriksen story uh, was massive and will forever, you know, be remembered. This tournament will ever, forever be remembered because of that. But mm. they're a really good team as well, aren't they? Just talk us through uh, how you saw their tournament um, and, and yeah, how their game was today, especially. Yeah, I'm pleased you said that because, you know, the, the Christian Eriksen you know, incident was was harrowing, and I can only imagine what it was like for Simon Kier and and the rest of those Danish players that were there, watching their friend, you know, be revived essentially. And you know, I think he was he was clinically dead at one point, and you know, I can only imagine how upsetting and how traumatizing that must be. Um, but to do what they did it happened on two levels or happened because of two things. One, the strength and the unity amongst that group was phenomenal. And everybody has noticed that and everybody has said that. And I 100% agree with that. The character shown, bear in mind, they lost their first two group games. You know, it's not as if they got, they, they lost the game against Belgium despite playing really well. To then come out in the circumstances like they did against Russia in that final group game was incredible. But Denmark did not reach the semifinals of the Euros because of, doing it for Christian Eriksen alone. They did it because they're a good football team. And and I think they really surprised people, me being one, because I'll be honest, you know, I'm not a Danish football expert by any means. I hadn't seen a lot of the individuals for Denmark other than those who are playing in the Premier League. But, you know, their system, their coach, Kasper Hulman, has has proven that he's a really, really good coach. Some of the patterns of play, you know, they're then playing three four three today. At one point, I was I was thinking England need to change shape here because Denmark are having a joy of, you know, a nice period of play, and they look threatening when they go forward. They look threatening, and and that's credit to them because you know you can't. I don't think you can reach the semi-finals 
on emotion alone. They've proven that they backed it up with some of their footballing ability. You know, we cast, we know Kasper Schmeichel is a really good goalkeeper. Yeah. We know that Pierre-Emil Hoybier is a fantastic midfielder. He's everywhere. Again, what he a game he had today. Oh, he was absolutely yeah. everywhere. And, and Tottenham fans and Southampton fans will tell you, you know, they knew that. They yeah. know how good a player he is. But for me, it's someone like Mikel Damsgaard. You know, it's, it's been so for such a young player to be so influential for a tournament, you know, and knowing that he probably was not going to be the main man had Christian Eriksen been there and been fit, um, he's absolutely propelled himself into the into the the inbox, if you like, of <laughs> of all these clubs around around the world that are going, oh, I like him. You know, he's good. He's proven what he can do, and. You know, even players like Yannick Vestergaard, the defender, Southampton. Yeah. You know, he's. I watched him last season, and sometimes he had some absolute shockers, and other times he looked pretty dangerous in the air. But you thought, oh, you know, he's kind of a middle of the road defender. Yeah. But watching him in this tournament, he's been really good, and and it's just been so nice. Casper Dolberg, another one. You know, just so pleasure. You know, so pleasing to watch this Danish team because. You know, it had any it had they lost or not qualified against Russia in that final group game, I think most people have gone, oh, you know, they've been truly yeah. well and truly affected by yep. what happened to Christian Eriksen. But mate, they, they, they've been a, an absolute joy to watch Denmark. And I think they've probably secured themselves as a lot of people's favourite second team. Yeah, completely agree with all of that. And they do have other notable players. Thomas Delaney plays at Borussia Dortmund. Yeah. Um Martin Braithwaite's obviously at Barcelona, Dolberg, AC Milan, I believe, Andreas Christensen at Chelsea. So, yeah, they have a team of top quality players that play in all the big, you know, the biggest teams in the biggest leagues. But, yeah, no, they were, uh, and I mean, even in that first half, they weathered the storm of England's early pressure, mm-hmm. but then completely switched the momentum of the game and then yeah. obviously got the first goal. But, you know, we're looking dangerous and we're carving England up there for a period. So, yeah, completely agree with what you're saying. And, yeah, what a tournament they've had. And we'll probably see a lot more of them in the years to come, I think. Um, yeah. All right, let's change tack and look at Italy and Spain. I am conscious of time as well. <laughs> all right, so Italy v Spain. Italy, what's that? 30, 31 games unbeaten now. Um, they missed, what, the 2018 World Cup in Russia. So this has been a renaissance under Roberto Mancini. Uh, they've had their troubles They've looked the most dominant, probably the most consistent throughout the tournament. They've had obviously yeah. a couple of diff- difficult knockout games and they've now lost a couple of players to injury. But um, you said at this earlier that you think they'll get over England and maybe we'll do predictions at the very end. But like, how do you see, or how did you see this game? Italy just managed to will themselves past Spain, didn't they? They did. And yeah, this is all in a game where, you know, I think they had about, 21% possession of the ball or something silly. You know, it's a classic Spain performance, just missing that that penetration up front. You know, long long gone are the days when it was David Villa or Fernando Torres. And listen, that's nothing against Alvaro Morata. He gets his pelters and, you know, he's also become their all-time top goal scorer in the European Championship. So, and his goal was brilliant. But what I was impressed with Italy by is that Spain had a lot of chances. They had the ball, but you just knew, you just knew one good ball in behind from Italy and they were in. And they, you know, you fancied them. They've been, they've proven that way throughout this tournament. Austria, most people, yeah, they won all their group games. They get, they play Austria and you think, mm, okay, it won't be easy because Austria, you know, buoyed by the fact being first time through, but they did it relatively hard in that game, but they came through. Then it's Belgium. 
everybody fancied Belgium and they rode their luck again, but they defended superbly, which is, you know, a characteristic that Italy, Italian football has had for a, a long, long time, but it was in spades in this tournament, you know, and, and they overcame Germany. Then it was, uh, sorry, Belgium rather. And then from then on, you're just thinking, there's something about this team. There's this aura of like invincibility about them. They feel as though they're on this 32 winning match, unbeaten run. And you just feel as though they don't believe they will be beaten. You know, I, and I love the fact that, you know, Giorgio Chiellini clears one out for a, for a corner and he's celebrating because it's like, it's like him scoring a goal, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I just watched them and, and I know it's been said a lot, but it, you know, it's because it's true. They, one of their biggest strengths is that they don't have a superstar. Mm. They don't have one player like a Cristiano Ronaldo at Portugal where everything has to go through him, you know? And I think that's that's one of the, that's the, arguably their biggest strength is that they are so well drilled in that they know what they have to do. They've got players who are capable of sublime quality. You know, Jorginho, you know, some of the passes yeah. we know he can play. Insigne is excellent. We know the two central defenders in Bonucci and Chiellini, but then you've got Federico Chiesa, mm. you know, to add to that, and Verratti in midfield. You know, they've, they've got all these players that are such a high level, yeah. but they're all willing to muck in and do the dirty stuff as well. Yep. And I think that's what's impressed me the most about it. And that's what I saw was so prevalent in that game against Spain. Yeah, agreed. Interestingly, there's, what, three Brazilian-born players in the Italian team? I think <laughs> yeah. Jorginho, um, Toloi, and then... Um, Emerson. Emerson as well, which is a, a, a funny little uh, side story. And also, they're the best dress by far. I mean, did you see the assistant manager or one of the other coaches that had the dapper sort of glasses on and the suit? Yeah. That was... Oh, anyway. My, my favourite was the... Was the post-match interview of Roberto Mancini and the, the guy who took the picture off the side of this when he was Mancini was doing one of his flash interviews is like he absolutely doesn't need to do this, but he's doing it anyway. And Mancini just had his just had his jacket sort of on. How can I describe this? Essentially in his fingertips, but just holding it draped over his shoulder, like just looked like he was a catwalk model. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's been uh, very entertaining uh, for this tournament as well, but. Um... Yeah, a couple of quick words on Spain as well. You sort of mentioned Murata there is now obviously the top goal scorer at European Championships, but they've got a couple younger players, which um, I think it's fair to say will be around for a few more years to come. Danny Olmo, I was massively yeah. impressed by his match. Um, I hadn't probably watched a lot of Spain in this tournament, but watching Olmo, oh, he was just finding space in between the Italian defence and sort of carving them open throughout this match. And then obviously Pedri, I think the stats were flying around on Twitter, what he's put two passes wrong throughout the whole game or something like yeah. that. But um, yeah, maybe a quick word on those two and sort of how they've, you know, Luis Enrique has sort of set the team up without obviously uh, Real Madrid players. Yeah, it's it's really um, really impressive. Danny Olmo for me, I, cause I, you know, I'm a big fan of Spanish football. I speak Spanish and, and you know, I pay a lot of attention to it. But Danny Olmo is a really interesting story. So he came through at, um, in Barcelona well, Espanyol, I think it was first, then it's Barcelona. But he then took the option to go to Dinamo Zagreb. And, you know, he could have been a player that could have had like, like a Danny Ceballos, if you like. He could have had a few picked up by a big team or, or, you know, made his way through to the Barcelona team, then had a Lions, few loans. Wells. Yeah, bounced around La Liga, but he didn't. He had the offer to go to Dinamo Zagreb. He went there. Then RB Leipzig picked him up. And he's just, he's so different. You know, to a lot of other Spanish players, he's quick, but he's also got the, the flair about him. But a bit similar to sort of Ferran Torres-ish, but 
but Danny Olmo coming inside, you know, like some of the passes he was able to make. And he's a real, real superstar in the making, Danny Olmo. I think there will be probably one of the two big Spanish teams, I reckon, after another season, we'll probably try and pick him up if they can. But Pedri is is the one. I mean, you know, if we look at Xavi and what we used to call him, like a metronome, you know, it was just he would just tick things over. The game would just go at his tempo. He's like a conductor, if you like, of an orchestra. But I remember, because, you know, for those who are listening who don't know, my, my sort of second team is Almeria, the Spanish team. There's a, a family connection there. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching Pedri, I think it was last season, just, not last season, just gone season before. He was, uh, you know, Las Palmas in the Segunda Division, just kind of a fleet-footed, like doing these like incredible bits of skill here and there. But, you know, you fast forward his career, Starts playing for Barcelona after, you know, they'd already agreed a transfer for him prior to that. But he gets his go at Barcelona. But now he starts pretty much every game at the Euros and stands out in a massive semi-final of the European Championships against Italy, against that midfield lot we just spoke about. I mean, how good is that? How That shows you how fearless he is and how much confidence he has in his own ability, but also how much confidence someone like Luis Enrique, who was a midfielder himself, you know, knows the position, has coached some of the best midfielders in the world in, in, you know, in football history, to throw Pedri in and go, go on, go and do what I know you can do. I mean, oh, talk about big raps on him. So, yeah, I mean, Mikel Oyatabal is a good player. They've got a young team, Spain. And I think, you know, they've had a bit of a lull period, but I reckon in, in the next couple of tournaments, I think we might see them, provided they could get another striker in there. I think yep. we might see Spain start doing okay again. Bloody hell, that's not good news. <laughs> <laughs> Prepared to have no possession. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think Pedri as well, didn't he? Um, so he's at Barcelona now, but didn't he get turned away by Real Madrid or wasn't there the story around that as well? He was there in the youth system and then didn't obviously cut it and had to find passes new, which is maybe one slip through the fingers of Real Madrid. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, and do you know what's really similar to that? I remember the, 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 the classic example of that is... Um, Yes, different players, but uh, was um, Samueletto. So Samueletto okay. was technically a Real Madrid player, and then they owned half of his rights with Mallorca. Barcelona wanted him, and then yeah, that's how that panned out. Real Madrid like, oh well, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. We you know we're not really sure how good he's going to be. You can buy his rights off us, and look how that turned out for, for <laughs> Barcelona. So yeah, there's. I mean, he he's. I just, I like, you know, I like seeing the stats. It's always a nice little screenshot when you see those sorts of stats about his pass completion rate. But, you know, to do that in a game with no disrespect, you know, let's say against El Maria in La Liga, if they get there one day, is one thing. But to do that in a European Championship semi-final against Italy, I mean, that is very, very impressive. Isn't it? So, uh, yeah, Spain will be back. I think that's the general consensus. Um, All right. The final Monday morning Australian time. I think it kicks off at five a.m. Sydney time. So, for our Perth listeners, that's three a.m. in Perth. Similar to how things have panned out over the past couple of days. But England v Italy. You mentioned at the start you think Italy will win. Um, you've kind of touched on it. Is that because you just think you, you don't feel like they believe they're going to lose, or um, yeah, talk us through the how the final will look. I think it's a bit of both. I think. You know, they have to lose at some point. Um, just whether or not that will come, you know, a 32 match unbeaten run ends in the final of a European Championship would be, you know, ridiculous. Um, it would be so unfortunate for them. Naturally, I hope it does happen. But I just think they, they, you know, 
not that this has too much of a role to play, but they'll have an extra day's rest going to the final that England will have done by virtue of the play the you know, day before. I think they probably look at England and think, if we can have a bit more of the ball, no problems if we can't, but if we can, I think they can probably dictate the game that they want it to be played. Um, I just think, you know, my, my heart says England, but my gut says Italy just because... As a football nation, they're experienced at this level, whereas I don't feel as though England are. But the, the thing that England have got going for them, Stewie, is that they, you know, they're at Wembley, they're at home. You know, we could, there will be Italian fans there. Don't get me wrong, but there were a lot of Danish fans there. We've seen that big block behind the goal today. But when the camera panned out, you saw the rest of Wembley, yeah. and you know, you saw just how much support England had. Yeah. And I, I think the the good thing about them is that they don't have. Sometimes you look at these these situations and think, oh, there's not a lot of senior, senior players in there, right? Well, they've got Maguire and they've got Jordan Henderson and Harry Kane and a couple of others. Raheem Sterling is a leader in the team as well. But they've got a lot of, a lot of young, fearless players. And I just hope, obviously, but I wonder whether that could work in their favour. You know, that they, they recognise from someone like Gareth Southgate who will tell them, you know, he'll get them up for the game. They don't need to be, but he'll get them up for it. But he'll also keep them level and he will say this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for you you know at Wembley to win a European Championship final something England have never done before mm. go and take it yeah yeah it's going to be fascinating to see how England um, handle the occasion it's just funny yeah. hearing you say that England are an inexperienced nation in these games you know what I mean like it just doesn't yeah. like it doesn't feel right almost because of obviously uh, the history in England and you know the the size of the English game globally. Yeah. So um, funny to hear those. So do you have a score prediction for us? Do you think, you think it'll go the distance, win on penalties or what? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> too hard to say. Too hard. It is too hard. I, because every time I think of one thing, I think I'll go, I'll go, yeah, but, you know, England will lose on penalties or England will lose in extra time or it'll be one nil to Italy and Italy will gain manage right up until the last second. You know, I just, it's so hard to, hard to tell. But if I'm going to go anything, let's just say two nil England. Come on, England. We'll see what happens. <laughs> the whole team will get knighted after that. That's yeah, sure. they will. Yeah. Uh, well, Dottie, time is creeping up on me in particular. I've, uh, mistimed this slightly but um maybe we'll just leave it there that's a complete wrap of the uh euros action how have you seen the tournament quickly final word in terms of how it's been set out um you know the 12 cities you know what was it all four semi-finalists played all three group games at home mm. so that's an interesting stat but um you know i guess in hindsight it worked well given the COVID situation it maybe would have been harder to host everyone in the same country but um how have you how have you seen the tournament especially this what the third place finished four of the third place finishes progress as well to the round of 16 but um yeah do you think any tweaks need to happen in terms of how the tournament's been set up um i think with the you know in a covid like you know landscape UEFA had already made this decision to have the the celebratory tournament you know for like their anniversary so it's going to be all around the europe you know, apart from Baku, which is yeah, a weird one, but you can only imagine yeah. why that happened. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just yeah. think that aside, I think the, the, the calibre of football 
has been excellent. Some of the games we've had, like some of that, that Spain-Croatia game and the Switzerland-France game was magnificent. Mm. The drama of the penalty shootouts. The quarterfinals um, were amazing, weren't they? Yeah, the quarters yeah. were sensational. And, and you know, that, that game, Dem- Denmark-Russia, and, you know, that that simultaneous with, with Belgium playing Finland. And I just remember really quickly watching that game. Uh, Denmark go 2-0 up. Then... Um, Belgium go one nil up at the the other game. At the same time as that Belgian goal is ruled out, literally like seconds, Belgium goal is ruled out. Russia get a penalty in the demo. So like literally the whole group swung on his head, and you know, and then and then watching Andreas Christensen thump that goal in for Denmark that basically sent them through to the knockout round. Like that was just incredible drama, and that's what this tournament's been about. Naturally, as you said earlier, it will be remembered for what happened to Christian Eriksen, and thank God, you know, he's 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 on 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 the mend but yeah it's just been a real f- and like these tournaments often are the euros is a really really high standard of football and we've seen it again and you know it's for me it would be a dream come true if england could could top it off and win it but even if they don't you know it's still been such a an enjoyable thing and you know for me this is also the first tournament that i've not been in england for or covered oh, wow. at, okay. at the tournament you know i was at the last three so working it's just um yeah how's the experience been better better to consume it this way or what um no for me no i'd much (laughs) rather be there but i just you know it's getting up at these alarm time these weird alarms and you know if i'm at work i'm watching all the games anyway the silly o'clock in the morning and you know it has been different it has been different but i've loved every second you know i love any football i could sit there and watch anything and to get the chance to watch you know this caliber of football is it's a joy yeah it really is. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, Italy v England in the final 5 a.m. Sydney time Monday morning. But also interestingly, side note, Brazil v Argentina in the Copa America final on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Um, so plenty of good football to watch this weekend. Um, Dottie, we can sit here and talk all day. I know it. <laughs> um, but we'll have to leave it there this time around. Um, yeah, 2 0 England. And um, Thanks so much for coming back on the Shooting Zars podcast. Pleasure, mate. It's good to see the podcast back as well. Really enjoying it. Awesome. Uh, We will be back, Bryce, me and Alex, maybe another episode before the Euros final. Uh, But until then, thanks for listening. Here comes Alan Shearer. It's Shearer for Newcastle. The way he brought that down was fabulous. 